0: Well, Psalm 146 is our sermon text, as I mentioned earlier. The bulletin lists verses 5 through 10, and that is the focus of the message and the, um, I guess you might say the traditional reading um, and the Advent season for this week of the year. I'm going to read all of Psalm 146. And we'll consider some from all of Psalm 146 as we go through. But I'm going to ask you now, if you're able, to stand in honor of the reading of his word, reverence for him and attentiveness to his voice. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we do thank you for your word that you have spoken into what is otherwise a dark, dangerous, and uncertain world, but you've spoken truth into it. For us and for our good. And we open it now with the expectation you have something to say to us today by your Spirit. We open our ears to hear it, Lord, our hearts to receive. And so would you speak, O Lord, your word by your Spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. And Lord, as always, I pray that you would move me out of the way and condescend to use my voice that yours might be heard for Christ's sake. Amen. you may be seated. Well, I read this this week, um, came across this little passage, actually from the Smithsonian Institution. Website, but it says on Freedom's Eve, the eve of January 1st, 1863, that is New Year's Eve, so December 31st, 1862. You smart people would know. On that night, the first watch services took place. On that night, enslaved and free African Americans gathered in churches and private homes all across the country. Awaiting news that the Emancipation Proclamation had taken effect. At the stroke of midnight, prayers were answered as all enslaved people in Confederate states were declared legally free. Union soldiers, many of whom were black, marched onto plantations and across cities in the south, reading small copies of the Emancipation Proclamation, spreading the news of freedom in Confederate states. Only through the Thirteenth Amendment, which was ratified later that year, December sixth of eight, uh, not that year, December sixth, eighteen sixty five only then did emancipation actually end slavery in the United States. But not everyone in Confederate territory would be immediately free at the uh, time the proclamation was made and effective, even though It was made effective in 1863. It could not be implemented in places still under Confederate control. As a result, in the westernmost Confederate state of Texas, enslaved people would not be free until much later. Freedom finally came on June 19th, 1865, when some 2,000 Union troops arrived in Galveston Bay, Texas. The Army announced that More than 250,000 enslaved black people in the state were free by executive decree. And this came to be known as Juneteenth, Juneteenth, which I have Juneteenth by the newly freed people of Texas. And you hear that mentioned, you know, as holiday uh, in that time of year. I thought of this in connection with this message Because I think it actually offers a good metaphor for the gospel in this respect that when the Emancipation Proclamation was written and even disseminated, freedom was promised. But then later, freedom was secured that is, through the continued war and bloodshed of people. That nobody was actually free until victory was won. Freedom was promised, but then freedom had to be secured. And once secured, freedom was heralded, announced. Good news was taken to those states to declare that people were now free, who had never known freedom. And then, following that, and you might argue, it continues to follow that, certainly for decades and decades, or the century that would follow, freedom was applied. That is, having... Having been made free and having been having had it made known to them that they were free, that then there was the challenge of believing that and living into it. What does a new life look like as a free person when all you've ever known was an enslavement? Well, that's a great metaphor for the gospel, isn't it? And it's actually a timely one, I thought, for Advent, which is why I chose it. Uh, a timely one in the sense that liberty, salvation, was promised long ago. And even in passages like this in the Psalm 146, sung by contemporaries of the psalmist and down through the ages by Jews, including those we read about in the New Testament Mary, Elizabeth, Anna, Simeon, Jesus, and all of those disciples living week in and week out as faithful Jews sang the Psalms, including Psalm 146, those that would promise salvation, but salvation then had to be secured. And then once secured, heralded. And then once believed, applied. And that too becomes a lifelong endeavor. Actually living into the truth of the gospel. Well, it is through the lens of the gospel... Having received it and believed it, it is through the lens of the gospel that we come back to the Psalms and really all the Old Testament and read it with newfound clarity that the contemporaries of the psalmist didn't have. Those who first read Psalm 146 didn't know what you and I know about God's salvation. They knew it was promised. They knew he could be trusted. They didn't know how it would be manifested. Neither did Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and the disciples before Jesus death and resurrection how might they have sung the psalm differently and how might those early believers who had lived their whole lives as Jews going to the synagogue how might they have sung it differently after Jesus rose from the tomb, after he explained to them more fully the gospel of the kingdom. Well, one of the things that I think they would understand much more clearly is the fullness, the nature of God's salvation. You and I have heard at the the saying... at some point in our lives, God helps those who help themselves. I read this week, one in eight people believe that's in the Bible. I'm I'm glad uh, to see the shaking heads here of you wise and mature. People who know otherwise know it's in uh, Richard's Almanac. Is that what it was called? uh, Ben Franklin's book, because... The gospel is a message not that God helps those who help themselves, but that God helps those who cannot help themselves. And he delights to do so. He likes to know that you know and I know that we're helpless. Because that's when he most glorifies himself when he demonstrates the grace that we need and we know that we need. And so that's really the message this morning, the point of the message this morning, is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. That he gives hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless, joy to the joyless, because he is good and gracious. So I just want to look quickly here at Psalm 146 and with, with that particular point, that message in mind. and First of all, just to notice it's kind of preliminary that there is a clear contrast presented in this psalm. That between princes and the Lord, you may have picked up on the fact as we were reading, as I was reading through those 10 verses that this psalm is about the Lord. He says it over and over and over again. But there's this clear contrast that for those in deep need, do not trust in princes. Do not trust in princes. Do not put your confidence in earthly rulers, those people with whatever sort of power or influence we might turn to and depend upon. Don't put your trust there. That could be a sermon All by itself. That could be a sermon series. Do not put your trust in princes. There is no salvation in them. And they will die. And their plans will die with them. That's pretty much what it has to say about princes. The finest of them. The ones who are really good. Like like good people. There have been some, right? They they are ethical, moral, they are good administrators, they make good rulers. And even when they rule what by earthly measures is a long time, their life is short. And they are gone and their plans are gone with them. Do not trust in princes. Put your trust in the Lord is the contrast That the psalmist offers. Because it says by contrast. Verse 6. He keeps faith forever. He will not die. And his plans won't fade. He keeps faith forever. Verse 10 says he will reign. Forever. He's not up for re-election. There's no scheming. That's going to take him off the throne. He, He... You know, he can't be, there can't be a coup against him, can't be impeached. And even if somebody did, he doesn't care, right? He's not going anywhere. And so, verse 5 says, happy is he whose help is in him. Actually, I didn't read. It, it, happy as he whose help is in the God of Jacob. I use the word happy. The King James or New King James uses that word. The ESV actually says blessed. But that word um, can mean both those blessed and happy. It's helpful to read it as happy so that we are reminded this is a source of joy for us. Keep in mind, this is likely being written at a time when When this is glaringly not manifest yet, like they're declaring something that's true about God, not because it's just happened, because it hasn't yet happened and they need to believe that it is, that it will, that that He is the God who reigns forever, that our help is rightly placed in Him, and that happy is He, who anchors his hope in the Lord. Because again, life offers us at every turn reasons to despair about the circumstances right in front of us, right? I'm not saying that's true all the time, but it's true next time. You know what I mean? If it's not true now, gonna be true later. That is is just part of what life holds. It's not as if all the time our circumstances are, are, are deserving of, if you will, happiness or joy. But Because he is who he is, we can always be a joyful people. And so that's the contrast that's offered to us. For people in deep need, don't trust princes, put your trust in the Lord. That's where our joy comes from. And then the the, the sort of meat of the psalm in verses 5 through 10 is this message that God helps the helpless. It's written to a people who know they're helpless. This is why I began with a call to worship that says, we need to remember that we were a people without hope in the world, that we were aliens, that we were strangers, that we were dead in trespasses and sins," he said in the passage just prior to that in Ephesians 2. We need to remember that because God helps the helpless. He lists here, as I listed for you in the newsletter article um, this week, if you read that, and kind of broke it down. He, he, he puts some, uh, he puts a face on helplessness, the oppressed, the hungry. The prisoner, the blind, those who are bowed down. You know, the picture, not, it, would also, it, it would also be a word suited to worship, but that's not what this is talking about here. One, one who is just submitted to the authority and power of somebody else, whether they want to be or not bowed down because they don't have any choice to posture themselves any differently. Most of us cannot identify on a personal level with that. Because we, we haven't really lived most of our lives with somebody lording it over that way. Some can because of the home you grew up in. You know, it, you know what that feels like. Maybe because of the a job situation you were in and you couldn't get out of. But most of us, only to a degree, know what it is to be bowed down in that way. He mentions the sojourner, the foreigner, the immigrant is who that is. The widow and the fatherless and the righteous among them, he mentions. These are people who have no power. And they have no recourse against People who do have power and who wield their power unjustly. They're people who don't have power and have no recourse against those who do. Again, we don't don't relate uh, probably fully, any of us, to a personal degree. Again, there's more or less familiarity with that concept at least. This is who he's describing here. People who have no power, no recourse against those who do have power, and therefore, no earthly hope of their circumstances ever changing. No circumstances of raising their station in life, improving their financial circumstances, or right on down the line. I mentioned in the newsletter that when Mary received word from the angel Gabriel that she was going to conceive and give birth to the Messiah. And then she went on uh, and got further confirmation of that word from her her visit to Elizabeth in the verses that followed. But there, beginning in verse 46 of of Luke chapter 1, she sang a song. We call it the Magnificat from the Latin word that begins that song. But my soul magnifies the Lord. And she goes on rejoicing because among other things, he has chosen me, little old me. My, he has done great things for me, this, this, uh, this person of lowly estate. She is young, poor, a woman from Nazareth. Like, those don't check any boxes. There are no credentials in that at all. She's a nobody in that culture. And she says, he's done great things for me. And then she starts naming some of them. That he was mighty, has done great things for me. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has set away empty. There's more to the Magnificat than what I just mentioned, but I I offered those two for some reflection ahead of time. But prior to coming into this service to get a sense of four people on the front side of the cross. What is their concept of what it means for God to save. Well, they, they have a really vivid personal sense of what it means to be in need. Nobody needs to describe that to them. They know what that looks like and feels like. To be poor, to be hungry, to have no power and no hope of gaining any power. They know what that looks and feels like. And so she rejoices. This is, again, I promise, he's not, the Messiah hasn't even been born, much less secured the salvation he's coming to secure, but she rejoices as if it's already happened. He has done good things. He's brought down the exalted and he's lifted up the lowly. Hallelujah. And the psalmist here begins with Mention of the oppressed. Looking for the verse uh, reference, verse 7. He executes justice for the oppressed. That Hebrew word means to come down on or keep someone down by unjust use of one's own authority. Often, Um, A a laborer being unjustly treated with respect to his wages, not being paid what he rightly deserves. You get James even mentioning this sort of thing in James chapter 5. But Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 15 have a reference to this. And what, I, what, I am, what I'm endeavoring to do this morning is for us to get our head and hearts in the place of understanding helplessness. That we remember ours and that we identify and sympathize with others. That we never lose sight of that and we never lose sympathy for that. Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker. This is that same word the psalmist used. Who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Now why, pray tell, did this have to be said to people? Why did people have to be told, you give the man what he's worked for. Give the laborer what he has earned. Give it to him before sundown. Why? Because there's a whole long list of people who wouldn't do it. Who would keep it for themselves without the intention of ever giving it to them. Who would keep it for themselves until they'd be sure they're in a strong enough financial position to pay payroll. He says, you shall not oppress a hired worker, even the immigrant among you not one of your brothers, as it were. Give him his wages on the same day, lest he cry out against you. Uh, I'll share this quickly. I think I, I have maybe mentioned uh, in, in relation to another message some time back. Uh, my first job as a child, really, <laughs> my first job was at a restaurant on the waterfront in Moorhead City, I was—I think—12 years old, um, soon turning 13. And uh, this was a this was a restaurant that was open early morning hours. It was closed by noon. They sold breakfast mostly to charter boat parties and some of the big deep sea fishing party boats that went out way way early in the morning. Uh, this friend and I got a job washing dishes at this restaurant. It was going to be a summer job. We started a little ahead of that on the weekends in the spring. He would spend the night, this friend would spend the night at my house on Friday night. We would set an alarm for 3 a.m. We would get up in the dark of night and walk down to the waterfront. Two 12-year-old boys. Can you imagine? A lot of 12-year-olds don't even get to go check the mail today, right? we walked down to the waterfront to this restaurant, went to work, washed dishes. We were done by lunchtime. And um, as I said, worked worked weekends and then worked over Easter break. Out of school for a week, I worked that whole week. And one of the things about that, one of the reasons I think of this illustration in particular is we were not old enough to be working. I think the age at that point may have been 13. Now it's 14. You couldn't work before that age. We knew we weren't old enough to work. And the manager knew that we knew we weren't old enough to work. (laughs) And so when it came, I worked that whole first, uh, that first week. I don't know how many hours I clocked, but it was plenty of them. It was pretty close to a 40 hour work week. Minimum wage at that time was $3.35 an hour. I could do the math. I knew this was going to be a pretty good Easter break for me. But she paid us at the end of the week $40 cash each. Now, you might not be able to do the math, but that doesn't add up. And it's not even close. Well, the thing is there, to, to, to make the long story short, I didn't stay at that job. That was not my summer job. I'm like, look, I was born at night, but not last night. And I could do math better than that, and, uh, and that is not worth my time. But it was, it was impactful in the sense that I felt what it was like to be a hired worker who did not receive the wages I was due, and I had no recourse. I had absolutely no power. There's nothing I could do about that, not only because I was only 12, (laughs) but because I knew I wasn't really even allowed to have a job anyway. Fortunately, in in that circumstance, though, I didn't need the job. I had two parents. I had a house, you know, to stick, To sleep in every night in a warm bed and so on and so forth. My needs were met. I didn't need that. But again, an illustration and an impactful one nonetheless. That in a humorous way, my first job was as an undocumented worker. (laughs) (laughs) Who was mistreated. Right? Wrongly treated. And that will do something in forming uh, a sort of heart that's inclined toward justice. And that despises injustice. And it certainly did for me. But that's the the sort of oppression that he's talking about. Helpless people who are wronged and can't do anything to fix it. Happy is he whose help is in the Lord for that very reason. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He'll vindicate you, not you yourself. I go on to Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18. And I'm going to try to move us along here. But in that same passage, he says, You shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Two things I, I, I really wanted to point out here. Number one is that we have in Deuteronomy 24 identified many of the same people that are identified in the psalmist. That he, the, the, the ones who are promised... And are given hope of salvation in Psalm 146. Are given protection by the law in Deuteronomy 24. Because everybody understands the reality that apart from that, they're going to be wronged. And even with that law, people are still going to do wrong by them. Those, the, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, and so on. But you shall remember that you were a slave. And that the Lord redeemed you from there. From where? From Egypt. Before this promised land was your home, your home was in Egypt as a slave. Don't forget it. Remember that. Because part of the story of God's redemption is what he redeemed us from. And so we fast forward this this message that God helps the helpless is for you and me. And first of all, again, that we would never forget that we're helpless. I don't know about you, for me, it's not too hard to be reminded of. I mean, I might forget it momentarily, But then I just stumble over it, you know, before I can get too comfortable with myself. But what do we do in light of that? I mean, how can we apply this in a way that keeps us reminded of our neediness, that Remember who we were and what God redeemed us from. I'm going to suggest two things I think that are, uh, you know, very closely connected or that sort of issue from this passage. One would be to show compassion to people in need. It is good for us, as a habit of our lives, somehow as a as a pattern of the way that we come and go and live our lives, to show compassion for people in need, whether that is um, serving in a ministry like Vigilant Hope or the Good Shepherd House or whether it's just sort of organically being on the lookout for people in need and noticing those and responding to those. Show compassion to people in need. James, as I mentioned earlier, speaks on this subject in a, in a number of ways, but he says in verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That he says, one who really has a saving faith ought to have works that match it. That's part of the message of James in chapter 2. But here he's, he, he gets specific and says that sort of faith that's pure would express itself in a care for orphans and widows. Now again, we ought to draw the principle from that to say it's not so much about those categories of orphans and widows as it is orphans and widows and like them, just people in need who are depending upon the compassion, support, of other people it does us good to keep ourselves in touch with personally in touch with people who live in poverty people who are chronically homeless immigrants newcomers to our culture and language you know one of the things I know uh, Dan and Steve and Brian and, and, um, and Doug and Bill and others who travel internationally Frequently, that um, they have more regular experience with this, maybe get used to it or not. But I know in, in our trips abroad, particularly uh, when we went to Oringa, one of the things that sort of vividly impressed upon me is the insecurity, the discomfort of being in a foreign place among people whose language you do not speak. I mean, it, it's a, it is an insecure feeling. It'll take you back to childhood, almost. I mean, the kind of feeling where a little child is wondering where mama went because li, li, you know, life just feels a little insecure without the familiarity of that, something to anchor yourself to. That's, that's the sort of feeling. Being in a place where the culture is foreign, you are clearly the non-native. You don't speak the language. You don't understand the language. See, we don't live there and we forget about that. And what I'm saying is one of the things we could do that would be good for us to keep us in touch with our own neediness and our own helplessness is is to keep ourselves in touch with those who are immigrants and newcomers to our culture and language. Those who are poor, those who are homeless, those who are immigrants. You could put other things on the list, but my point is, not just abstractly, not even just giving a check and putting it in the mail. Something that puts us personally in touch with concrete, real-life need. Because, see, it is an illustration of ours, right? It is an illustration of our the illustrations that God... And it's more than an illustration. I don't want to limit it to that. He's not only speaking symbolically or figuratively. He has real care for real people who are really poor and homeless and helpless. But even as we are not those things, we are still needy. And it reminds us, if we, will put our, if we will keep ourselves in touch with those needs, then we can say, remember, you were once far off too. You were once aliens and strangers too. You were once without hope in the world. That's what Ephesians 2 says of you and me. Stay in touch with real hope. Concrete need of that sort. The second one would be the, the an, an application of this message. What is how can we uh, sort of keep keep the tools sharpened as it were? How can we how can we keep alive our sense that we are helpless people in need of God's help? It would be not only showing compassion to those in need, but Freely acknowledging your sins and failures and weaknesses. That may sound so cliche. And that may sound so standard fair that it goes right over your head because it's time for you to wrap up. Anyway, Stacy, so go ahead and land the plane here. And like, it, that one's easy to miss. But I'm, I'm just telling you, a Christian who can't admit their own failings and wrongdoings to other people may not really understand God's grace and their helplessness. Right? I mean, if you, if, you don't, if you can't really admit your own failings and wrongdoings, you don't understand them well enough. You, you don't understand and I don't understand that I once was a slave. I once was an alien and stranger. I once was far off and everything I am now is because of what he did. He went and I was far off. He brought me near. I was an alien and stranger. He made me a citizen of the Commonwealth of Israel. I was a slave. He set me free. And again, it does my heart good. One of the things that will keep me in touch with my neediness is just to be honest about my failings, my sins against others. I'd be quick to say I'm sorry and quick to forgive. Now, you talk about a lifelong challenge of living into the gospel. There's one for you, isn't it? Like learning all my life how to be a little more honest about my own weaknesses and failures. Learning all my life how to be a little quicker to say I was wrong. Please forgive me. Learning all my life how to be quicker to forgive rather than holding a grudge. Rather than using it as power against somebody, ironically be quick to freely acknowledge your sins, failures, and weaknesses because God helps those who cannot help themselves. And one of the things that is most important for you and I to know, always, as often as we need to be reminded, is that I still cannot help myself. That I still need the grace of God. That I still live by the gospel every day. And that I have the commission, the commandment, and the great privilege of being one of those former slaves who gets to go herald the freedom that has been secured, the freedom that was long ago promised, that it's been secured, that there are people out there who have been set free and don't know it yet, People out there who are sheep in the, in, in, in the fold of the good shepherd, they don't know that's who they are yet and won't until somebody goes and heralds in their hearing. Good news. I was what you are, but now I'm not. And he made all the difference for me and can for you too. That's good news, isn't it? That's the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do praise you. We praise the Lord this morning, and we even as we acknowledge that we don't praise as long as we live as long as we have our being, Lord, that there are we, we are up and down and our enthusiasm ebbs and flows and there are days when we gripe and groan and moan. There are days when we set our, part, our hearts upon other earthly things, Lord, that we, we don't constantly praise and yet, Lord, we never praise By your grace, we never stray so far that we lose sight of your worthiness of our praise and that you alone rightly receive our praise. And so we praise you today and thank you for the promise of salvation toward us who are still and were needy, desperately needy people. For the promise that you secured it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That it was heralded in our hearing, Lord, that once upon a time, somebody shared the gospel and we understood it and we believed it and we responded to it in our life has been and continues to be a journey of applying that in our lives. Lord, would you, would you take us deeper even now? Lord, that our hearts might stay keenly attuned to the needs of other people in a physical and in a spiritual way. That we might be, to some degree, the instruments you would use to make known to others in the world the freedom that you've secured for them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.